Eagles Entertainment. The journey to the draft is driven by AAA. AAA, roadside is their strong side. Make AAA a part of your game day today. AAA, go ahead. With the 25th pick in the NFL draft, the Philadelphia Eagles select. You're listening to the Journey to the Draft podcast, driven by AAA. Welcome to the Journey of the Draft podcast, driven by AAA. I'm your host, Fran Duffy, and we've got a handful of games to look at here for this weekend in college football. We've got an ESPN little mini mock draft and some sleepers to break down a little bit later in the show. We're going to kick things off with Ben Fennell in Saturday Scouting, where we'll break down some of the matchups for this weekend. We'll get a word in from Mel Kuyper, Todd McShay, as I teased earlier, and then we'll highlight some of the traits that we value most in a starting nose tackle, specifically a 4-3, one-gap nose, a one-technique defensive tackle. So we'll talk all about that in Saturday Scouting. After that, I welcome back Kyle Krabs from the Draft Network to the show. We'll talk about some guys that uh, have stood out to Kyle so far this season and guys that he likes a little bit more than the consensus. And then we'll wrap things up with pick six. Ross Tucker and I will once again go head-to-head. Another set of six picks. We'll see if Ross is able to gain some ground on me this week. We'll talk about some of the biggest games for this weekend's action. As always, best way to help us out, go on, leave us a comment, give us a rating on our Apple Podcasts or Stitcher pages. Hope you guys enjoyed the special mock draft episode that we had this past week. If you like some of the picks, if you've got some comments, you want to get back to us uh, on how you feel your team did, just go on to Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating, leave us a comment uh, about the mock draft in there, and we will uh, we'll hit you back next week because we will be back with our normal Monday episode or Tuesday morning episode uh, of the Journey to the Draft podcast early next week. All right, let's get this show started. Let's kick things off with Saturday Scouting. It's time for Saturday Scouting. All right, well, let's kick things off here on Saturday Scouting. And as I welcome in my friend Ben Fennel, Ben, uh, let's get to some big matchups this week, man. A couple games uh, have been canceled. Some ranked teams not playing this week that were scheduled to play, but still have a couple of games that uh, I think we're lo- both looking forward to. What's your, uh, your number one matchup you're looking forward to on Saturday? I don't know. This podcast is going to be dated in about 24 hours. <laughs> Stuff tough, tough to keep up with all the news. But I love UCLA and USC, and that's Demetrik Feltland and Amonra St. Brown. They're not going to be covering each other, but they're going to be trying to outrace each other in the stat sheet. St. Brown had four touchdowns in the first quarter last week, and St. Brown's kind of a through-and-through slot receiver. Feltland's going to do a lot of his work out of the backfield. He might have 10 catches out of the backfield one week or 30 carries out of the backfield one week. Either way, two guys, you want to get the, the ball in their hands any way you can. Close proximity to the line of scrimmage and to the quarterback. Let them do the dirty work. I like it. I'm going to go into the SEC here. A big one, Florida versus LSU. I like the Gators in this game. And one big one to watch, just at the second and third level. Uh, obviously, one of the biggest matchup nightmares in the country. Everyone knows who Kyle Pitts is. But you look on the other side, one of the best coverage linebackers in this draft is going to be LSU's Jabril Cox. You've highlighted him before in the past. Dane has. I have. This guy's a really impressive player. And what he can do in coverage, I think, makes him really, really intriguing. This will be a big one-on-one matchup for him when, if and when they are matched up in space. My, my guess is Florida likes the idea of putting a, a linebacker on, on Kyle Pitts. But Cox, really, really good coverage player. So I'm interested to just kind of see this matchup. I, don't, I only expect maybe a handful, you know, we'll say I, I doubt it gets to double digits, but those reps where they are matched up one-on-one, whether it's in man or in some kind of matchup zone, I'll be really intrigued to go back and watch those later. Well, Fran, if you check out my timeline from last week, I went back and watched Kyle Trask against LSU last year. I wanted to see him against the national champs. It seemed like they tore through everybody. Florida really gave him a challenge. Yep. 
I highlighted a couple inbreakers from Kyle Pitts. And who was on Kyle Pitts' back on both those plays? Number one corner, Derek Stingley, both times. Mm. So I'm interested to see who LSU thinks they need to shut down. They didn't have Jabril Cox last year. Yep. He's long, and what he specializes in? Covering tight ends and erasing tight ends down the seam. So two NFL prospects there. But I'll stay in the SEC. Man, there's a linebacker having an incredible year. Team, not a whole lot of wins in the win column. But Nick Bolton, man, this guy is flying around. We all felt comfortable putting him in our first round mock this past week on Journey to the Draft. I think we plugged him into Cleveland, if I'm not mistaken, so, yep. which is just such a perfect AFC North type of body. You've been comparing him to a Devin Bush who ended up in Pittsburgh. He's, he's a snot bubbler out there, and he's going to see a lot of this George offensive lineman, Ben Cleveland, Zamir White in the backfield. Nick Bolton, middle of the defense of Missouri. If you see Georgia, Missouri on, may not be a national championship type of, type of game, but a lot of NFL prospects look for that linebacker in the middle of those uh, Missouri Tigers. Yeah, and another guy just watching in the Georgia trenches, the left guard, Justin Schaefer, uh, he, like, hunts people at the second and third <laughs> level. If there's a guy that is seen as, like, an uh, enforcer on the other side, Justin Schaefer is going to defer, like within the first drive. At some point, he's going to go after Nick Bolton. So I'd keep an eye on that. The left guard, Justin. And Schaefer. also kind of kind of relevant. We're going to touch on later in the show here. Each of those teams have some interesting one tech nose tackles mm. to consider for the next level. Kobe Whiteside, yep. Missouri, Big Jordan Davis, Georgia. We'll talk about that in a couple minutes. No question. So uh, before we get there, though, we're going to talk through a, a mock draft. Um, and ESPN just did a uh, kind of like a video uh, mini mock draft between Mel Kuyper and Todd McShay. They this is cool. Top- just a top 10, a little bit of a roundtable kind of discussion. I like this. Yeah. I like the style. Yeah, it was a cool kind of format. So I thought, all right, let's just t- talk through a handful of the picks here. And the first one, obviously, uh, a lot of Eagles fans listening to this episode. So we'll start with who the Eagles selected in that mock draft. And it was Devontae Smith, the Alabama wide receiver, at number seven overall. Uh, look, we, we've talked a lot about Devontae Smith, and we will continue to talk a lot about Devontae Smith. He's been one of the most productive players in college football, not just this year, but over the course of his career. He's been consistently productive for the Crimson Tide. You go back to his freshman year, he's the guy who caught that game-winning touchdown from Tua Tonga-Vailoa uh, in his breakout in the, the, the national title game versus Georgia all those years ago. So I think when you look at Smith, he has been a very productive player. This year, th- those numbers are just going through the roof because he is really the, the guy in that receiving core. But uh, this is a guy that I, th- I feel like a lot of people are going to be excited about. I'm very interested to kind of follow this and see if he continues to be talked about in the top 10 of this draft or if that kind of cools off as the process gets closer. The combine, I feel, is going to be just important for him because uh, in just in terms of the narrative, you know, and I think that's going to be really interesting to watch here in the coming months with Devontae Smith. Yeah, and they take a receiver at seven, and that might be because another receiver went at five, and that's Jamar Chase to the yep. Chargers. And it's an exciting proposition to plug in Keenan Allen, Mike Williams, Jamar Chase with the young Justin Herbert. I got to tell you what, though, the NFL is in a bunch of seven-on-seven passing tournaments. That offensive line needs some help. You got to keep Herbert healthy and upright. It would be a major gamble for the Chargers to pass on offensive tackle. But it's a deep group. Could probably get an elite starting tackle in the second round as well. There's only so many Jamar Chases walking around. So that's a really interesting trio of receivers for a team that really wants to light up the scoreboards. And hopefully they get Derwin James healthy healthy on the defensive side next year. And this is a, a really a contending team. Uh, that has a top 10 pick. I think it's it's interesting when you start talking about the teams that are top four, top five, top six, because obviously, look, if you're drafting that high, you do not have a good season, right? And if you're looking at trying to get your team out of that area, you're trying to take, uh, this isn't like, I'm not, this isn't like rocket science. I don't think this is like overly insightful, but you're trying to take players 
who who's a player that can elevate you out of taking picking in the top six, top seven, right? Who are the what are the positions and the players that can take you out of that? Not every draft is going to have six or seven of those players, right? So if you're not getting one of those guys, you want the guys that are going to be mainstays, you know, long-time starters, and you know, you give you 9, 10, 11, 12 years of production. So that's why the offensive tackle position gets valued so highly, right? Because those guys can play very long into their career. And that's why I found it to be very interesting. In this draft, or in this mock draft, the Dallas Cowboys selected Micah Parsons, the Penn State linebacker, at number four. And I look at this and I say, okay, if I'm, if I'm the Dallas Cowboys, is Mike, and maybe he is, that's why I kind of opened it up to you, is Micah Parsons a guy that if I take him at number four is going to elevate me so now I'm not going to be picking at this point? And they probably wouldn't have been picking that high if, da- if Dak Prescott hadn't gotten hurt. Maybe that's the way they look at this. But I, I think it's an interesting discussion to have, not just with Parsons, but with a number of these guys, You know, whether it's Jamar Chase, whether it's Devontae Smith, any, a lot of these guys that we're talking about in the top ten of this draft. Yeah, and my kind of takeaway from looking at these teams in the top 10 is there's a couple bad teams out there. We know, you know, Jacksonville Jets, yep. they have to rebuild. There's a lot of teams in this top 10 that aren't bad, but having bad years for whatever reasons. And, yep. you know, like the Chargers, like, you know, Carolina Panthers have a new regime. You know, the NFC East obviously hasn't gone as planned, but there's a lot of, you know, talent on those teams. A lot of interesting teams picking in the top 10. It's like 10 to 12 teams that are just in this bubble of floating in kind of mediocrity that you don't really know. Are they bad teams? Do they have a bad year? Are they one top 10 pick away from being a playoff team next year? And I look at some teams like, you know, the Carolina Panthers and their top 10 pick here could go a number of directions. You get the quarterback yeah. of the future. They haven't taken Kyle Pitts, tight end, exciting, you know, top 10 tight end. Um, or even the Detroit Lions finally saying, let's look for our Matthew Stafford of the future with a Zach Wilson there. Does that mean does Wilson sit for a year? Is Stafford still there for a year or two? Are the Detroit Lions a bad team collectively? Or do they need some new leadership, a new quarterback, new head coach? And it's a pretty competitive roster. You know, same thing with the Atlanta Falcons. They need a lot of help. You could put an edge rusher there in the top 10. They have Patrick Sertan going in there can easily put Gregory Rousseau, Quiddy Pay, maybe a linebacker there. They could use a lot of help uh, in Atlanta. But a bunch of teams in the top 10 that I'm not willing to say they're bad, just interesting kind of calendar years. Yeah, I think that's why, you know, when we talk about like positional value and, and things of that nature, that's why you look at what are the impactful positions, guys that can change, change plays, change drives, change games. You talk about pass rusher, and it's like, yeah, okay, like this This makes sense. If he's a true shutdown corner, a Jalen Ramsey type, right, Patrick Peterson in his heyday, yeah, like that guy goes in the top five, top ten, and, that, and that's worthwhile. I think it's a, just a really interesting discussion uh, when you're talking about the guys that go that high in the draft and, w- and whether or not that's, you know, quote-unquote, uh, worthwhile value uh, in that area. So uh, interesting discussion. Like I said, interesting content idea there from ESPN. Doing the and I also wonder there's some teams that I think I have good rosters and good management, good leadership might be a position away. Maybe the Colts need that quarterback of the future. Maybe the Patriots really just need a quarterback. I want to see if one of these teams are going to be super aggressive to go get that one guy they need. Yep whether it's mortgaging this year, next year, spiting the future to get the guy that seemingly is the one position away from being a contender for 10 years. I mean, could you just imagine, uh, you know, uh, Justin Fields going to Indianapolis or Trevor Lawrence ended up in New England. You know, I'm, I'm thinking one of these teams are going to be super aggressive to go get that one, like you're saying, guy to change, you know, the team around you and make everybody else better. Uh, and there's some really good teams that seem like they're just a position away. 
Yeah, I think that's a, a really good point. Um, as you teased earlier, uh, we're going to go under the hood this week, and we're going to talk about one-technique defensive tackles. So really quickly, let's just provide a little bit of a, a definition for what we're talking about here. We A few weeks ago, we did the three-technique, and that's the defensive tackle that is lined up between the guard and the tackle. You know, Typically, what people are looking for with the three-technique is a guy that can explode upfield, uh, you know, make plays on the other side of the line of scrimmage, you know, penetrate, all those things. And when you're looking at a one technique, again, typically, you're looking for a guy that's more than likely going to handle more double teams at the point of attack. So he's got to be a little bit more stout. Uh, you know, the, this is a guy that's going to line up between the guard and the center. So a little bit more traffic, a few more, you know, few more bodies. Things are happening a little bit faster. So that being said, Ben, when you're looking at a one technique defensive tackle, what's the number one trait uh, in your mind that you're looking for at that position? Yeah, and just to kind of quickly uh, tease off of the, uh, the primer for the position – you know, there's a lot of different types in here because the nose tackle, which is typically lined head up with the center, is a odd front position. They want to clog rush lanes, two gap. They're rarely getting up the field. Those are the line of scrimmage dwellers. You're hanging there right on the line of scrimmage. Or if you're a one tech defensive tackle in an even front, typically you have an autonomy to get up the field. You're in a single gap scheme, but you still have to be able to hold double teams, clog rush lanes, just like a nose tackle. Yeah, I think it's Three, a, a really who is the, the premier at the position. That's the Kenny Clarks, Linval Josephs, yep. Michael Brockers, DJ Readers. We've seen some of the draft lately and Vita Vedas, uh, you know, Dexter Lawrence's, Danny Shelton's. They don't always work out either, that high draft capital. You know, the Vince Wilforks, Casey Hamptons, Chris Jenkins of the world. But that number one quality that I need, Fran, that we don't talk a lot about from these interior trench position players, we always talk about this with linebackers, but the ability to read and react. Mm. the block identification. And I think it's harder in the trenches yep. because it happens so much faster. It happens in a flash. You have to be able to immediately identify and process. Is this a base turnout block? Is it a double team? Are they pinning back to me? Are they trying to reach me? Are they cutting me? Oh yeah. The pass game. Is it a screenplay? All that happens literally in a snap linebacker typically has two or three steps to read that. So I don't think we talk enough about block identification from these trench players. And that's really the first step and then defeating the block and making a positive on the play. So that's something I think is a really interesting kind of point with trench players. We don't talk about nearly enough. Yeah, I feel like that's a a really good point to bring up. And one point, you know, you brought up something that we don't talk about enough. One that I feel like has been a consistency, uh, you know, for us, you know, regardless of what position we're talking about, we talk about competitiveness and toughness and Look, if you're going to play on the nose there, if you're going to play uh, as a shade in between the guard and the center, regardless, really on the all-in defensive line, I need you to be tough. I need you to be able to handle playing through contact. There are, And I say this as if it's a given. It is not a given. You and I watch a lot of film, uh, not just college, but we're talking about when we watch NFL film, there are a lot of guys that just don't want that, want that smoke inside. right? We, we see guys that do not handle double teams well, do not handle those down blocks well. And for honestly, you know, honestly, they don't last long in the NFL. You know, young guys that come in get blown off the ball, and you just don't—they don't want that ability to be able to play uh, in the trenches, down after down after down. I need that guy to be, you know, willing to come in and even not just like check the box, but like how often did we talk about this back in like 2017 when the Eagles went to the Super Bowl? Just the mindset that like a Tim Jernigan showed us, you know, he, you know, he, he puts his hand in the dirt. He looks up at you as an offensive lineman. He flashes that like golden smile and like gives you the wild eyes. And you're like, man, like, what am I in for today as an offensive lineman? Like you like that edge for those guys on the interior. Yeah, absolutely. And, (laughs) you know, it's kind of funny because (laughs) if I've learned anything in the last 10 years, Rand, it's big people are not necessarily tough 
and are not necessarily strong. Yep. And I think that's really something that you have to kind of break the mold over and thinking that he's six six three forty. Well, I got news for you. There's a chance he's not strong. There's a chance he's not tough either. So yep. it's a really funny thing to kind of sort through all those size uh, kind of uh, visuals first. But the other thing is obviously going to be the lower body strength. We need the power. Yep. We need the leverage from the ground up. Obviously, it's a very um, uh, area-based position that you have to hold your ground. You're typically holding 300, maybe even 500 pounds of weight on you with some of these double teams. And a lot of that is generated from the ground up with your lower body strength, your power, your leverage. Are you? Do you place more importance on a guy's strength, so his ability to hold the point of attack and you know not get moved off his spot, or power, the ability to move other people against their will? And that's a great nuanced conversation as well. And a lot of that is you know kind of the the, the primer of the position that you're playing, what you're asked to do, whether you're that nose tackle or whether you're that upfield guy. Um, you know, this it's probably uh, different for different schemes. Yep. Uh, but the whole strength versus power kind of uh, philosophical approach is a really interesting, deep discussion. Because uh, to, to me, like the anchor for that nose tie, I, like, I need that guy to be able to hold the point. Or the same reasons why we talked about. So not only the toughness aspect of it, the willingness, but also – uh, just that ability. I mean, if you can't drop your weight, you know, go sumo sit against the double team, stay square, and then, you know, be, be able to get off of it and you know, hold you again, hold your ground, not end up in the linebacker's lap, not get torqued to the ground and open up a big running lane. The ability to kind of hold your ground, I think, is just so important uh, at that position. So that would be my number two trait as well. Uh, what's your third? Well, Fran, if, I, if you're one of the strongest defensive tackles in the league and you have lower body strength and you have the ability to ID, but what happens if you're laid off the ball? Mm. You're done. Yep. So I need you to still have some functional quickness. And it may not be in the same sense as a three-tech, an edge player, or any other player on the field for that matter. It's literally quickness in a sense of you might be looking to operate two feet in front of you to get to that spot with your eyes up with a proper leverage and base to ID the block and put yourself in position to then defeat the block or play the block. And all that happens with quickness, the ability to ID the double team right away, put yourself in position, then you get to use the physical tools. But I love all the mental aspects of being quick off the ball, getting to the spot, reading, reacting the block. All that stuff happens before we get to do anything physical before we get to punch anybody in the face and hold our ground and shed blocks and finish ball carriers. Um, so the ability to be quick, but it's not in the sexy quickness we're always talking about and seeing some of these, you know, giant dancing pandas at the combine running 30 yards. It's not that type of quickness. It's a phone booth type of quickness. It happens in a flash and it's such an underappreciated quality uh, from those trench players that really it's tough to appreciate and know anything about it until you see it and get in there and have somebody explain how fast they have to diagnose and do things. And if you think it happens fast on the edge or the corner, do it with a, you know, another 300 pounder nose to nose with you in the trenches. And we're on the same page. Cause that was mine as well. And I just feel like there's a certain amount of twitch that's needed for that snap anticipation, that ability to get off the ball fast uh, on the interior. So I don't want to spend too much time there because you have already hit on what the biggest points are for, were for me. Uh, so we'll just get to the next question. And that is what is it that separates the elite guys at this position from the good players at this position? And to me, in my mind, it's not just that ability to get off, 
but then to win quickly. You know, we talked about that at the three technique spot is like, who are the guys that can create, you know, some instant rush, some instant penetration from the nose. That is a play record, right? I mean, you've got that, you know, you look at Dayron Payne. That's one of the th- reasons why I loved Payne so much coming out of Alabama, why he's been such a fun player to watch in Washington is that he's got that ability to win so fast. And even like Kenny Clark, like Clark for the most part is more of a slow burn guy, but you saw some of that ability at UCLA and you've seen it at times here in the NFL is that ability to win fast on the inside. And there are lots of ways to do that. You might do it with pass rush skill and use of hands. You might do it with block anticipation. You might do it with that elite first step. There's a, you know, with that explosive power, the ability to move the center or the guard right off the ball and, and, you know, you know, get that change the line of scrimmage. There's lots of ways to do it. Find a way to win quickly. Those are the guys to me that are the elites at the nose tackle spot. I love that. There's so many ways to do it. You can win quick by shocking, getting your hands inside. That's winning quick. Shooting the gap and getting, uh, you know, across the line of scrimmage with a first step is winning quickly. Beating your guy on a half man, getting to his edge is winning quickly. Yep. It's just such a different kind of mindset than other ways to win quickly. We, of course, want one step explosive, and that a lot of that is that quickness, that ability to get off the ground or get off the ball. But one kind of trait we talk about a lot, offensive linemen, defensive linemen, Fran, typically elite quality players, rarely on the ground. Yep. And particularly these defensive tackles, if you're on the ground, something isn't going right. You didn't do something right technique-wise, play ID, execution-wise. And the ones that aren't on the ground are typically the ones that are stout, light on their feet, great play ID, use their hands you know, the ability to to get out of a number of different blocking schemes. And, you know, it's just a very collective trait across anybody on the field. You're on the ground. Typically, there's a poor quality or negative connotation tied to it. And we always like to comment and say, man, we love this guy rarely on the ground or we'll see a offensive tackle besides this cut block. Man, Fran, was he on the ground at all today? And, you know, it's just a trait that seems like uh, the quality players all have it. I love that. And is there, uh, you know, I, I think one of those traits that it's a lot of, we say, we like to say a lot, but there's no like quantifiable way to like say like, Oh yeah, that guy's never on the ground. We just, we just always say it, but it's such an important part of playing that position. Uh, let's get to the last part of this. Now let's kind of bring this back to this 2021 class. Are there guys that you feel uh, best represent what we're talking about here in terms of being, you know, a guy that can come in and play in the nose? Absolutely. And I can run off 10 names for you, but I really think the, the, the deep part of this conversation is where is the draft capital for these players? Mm. You know, and we've had the Dexter Lawrence's go first round Vita Vea's, um, you know, Danny Shelton's didn't seem to work out. One of my favorite nose tackles last year, Lucky Foto, fourth round pick, you know, and Jordan Davis, big six, six, three forty at Georgia, got a lot of first round love. And I'm just saying, I'm not sure what he's going to provide is a first round capital player. But I think he's one of the best nose tackles in college football, Fran. And it's a really deep discussion on saying what makes him a first-round quality player being a nose tackle. You have that ability to also affect the pass game, uh, whether it's the quick twitch, the collapsing the pocket, the bull rushing the strength. I love Tyler Shelvin at LSU, Jordan Scott at Oregon I love. We just talked about Jordan Davis, Kobe Whiteside. It's more of a squatty type at 6'1", 305 at Missouri. I mean, to Daryl Slayton at, at Florida is close to 360. That guy doesn't move backwards, but he's a line of scrimmage dweller through and through. He's one of the best one-techs in the country. 
He doesn't go backwards, but I got news for you. He doesn't go forward either. Yeah. So where does that get you drafted in the NFL is a deep conversation. Aleem McNeil, NC State, Bobby Brown III, Tommy Togiai. I mean, I could steal all these names from you as I see your eyes quickly searching your database for some more. Uh, but it's a fun it's a fun kind of conversation uh, with this position and what type of draft capital warrants it. See, like to me, when we're talking about those big hulking guys, I – I almost kind of put them into a different kind of bucket because for the same reason that you were just saying, like, I don't know that I can look at those guys and say, yeah, like I, this guy is worthy of going in the top 20, top 25, top 40, top 45, you know, how, somewhere in that group. I don't know that you're getting that ROI, that return on investment from those players, because again, it's all about uh, preventing big plays, getting big plays defensively. And a big part of that is obviously getting after the quarterback, right? And so if you're not a guy that's going to consistently get after the quarterback, it's like I mentioned earlier, what's the thing that separates the good from the great? It's those guys that can win fast. And so often the guys that I say, okay, I think this guy can play no shade. It's a guy that I feel has some three tech versatility. I think he's got that ability to shoot gaps and make plays on the other side, but then also He's so stout and violent enough that he's got the ability to hang inside. So I look at a guy like a J2 Faley, like he's 6'3", 310. Yeah, I like him more as the, mostly as a three, but I think he's got the skill set to be able to play inside. He's got really heavy, violent hands. He shows the ability uh, you know, to just drop his anchor and hold the point of attack. I look at Levi Onzerike in Washington, right? He's 6'3", 288. I mean, he's 288 pounds. He was a D-end in high school. But you watch him, he lines up as a zero technique in that scheme. He lines up as a one. He'll slide to the four eye at times over the offensive tackle. But when you look at the way that he plays, I mean, he is violent. He is heavy-handed. He can change the line of scrimmage with initial power. So, yeah, I like him as a three. I like his ability to get off the ball. He's got great initial quickness. He times the snap well. He's really twitchy. But then I look at the way that he plays, and I'm like, all right, Let's say he's two, he was 28 Washington. Let's say I get him up to 295, 298. He still maintains some of that quickness. If I'm a, a straight-up you know, one-gap team and I just want my guys to all penetrate, I think he's got that temperament and he's got that ability to hold his ground against some double teams on the inside. But now you know, we'll have a, a more explosive three technique on the, you know, next to him. I've got those two guys on the inside. I feel really good about it. So uh, Onzerike uh, is another guy I kind of would say, all right, he's got that ceiling to be a really high-level one technique, he might not be as stout as, uh, you know, Marvin Wilson or, uh, you know, you talk about Jordan Davis and Tyler Sheldon and TJ Slayton and all these other guys. Um, but I think Onzerika is another guy. It's a, a different packaging, but I think it still bring a lot of impact to that one technique position. That's how I feel about Bobby Brown III, who NFL scouts are all over. Not necessarily that great on the field, but yep. has that combination of being stout and the one-step quickness. But Fran, just before we go here, collectively – is this a dying position in the NFL? Would you rather just getting two, three techs out there, maybe sacrifice a little bit with some run down, uh, early down run plugging, but the ability to disrupt, get up the field, like at the Philadelphia Eagles, Chris Wilson's scheme is we don't teach gaps. We don't teach reach blocks. Everybody get up the field and disrupt. So there's a certain type for that. And I got a news for you. It wasn't the traditional nose tackle, 340-pound guy. We could survive with a 285-pound one-tech because we need him to be quick and up the field. So it's an interesting kind of thought with the NFL and particularly how they're also being drafted and then used. You know, the nose tackles really aren't playing a lot in the NFL in the sub-package world of trying to counter speed on offense. You know, is that a position that's kind of being phased out? 
I think it ultimately depends on the scheme. And you, I mean, obviously you, you do a lot of work covering the Green Bay Packers. You watch Mike Pettin's scheme with what they, sometimes you're going to have guys that, you know, in theory, it's a one gap scheme, but you're going to have players that are two gap players more often than not. And so if you have those guys, you look at Baltimore, uh, the way that they play, you look at Pittsburgh, the way that they play, you look at a number of teams right now that have those guys up front. You know, Seattle has, has long had those guys where, yeah, more often than not, we're going to ask you to get into the backfield but we also need you to be a two-gap guy uh, on early downs. And you know maybe you're not going to get double-digit sacks year in and year out, but you might give us four or five sacks in a given year and also be a quality run player. But I think it's every, every team is going to look at it differently. So I don't necessarily think it's a dying position. I think just for us on the outside, understanding who are the players that best fit this role and what are the teams that utilize those roles and not just say, oh, this guy's a defensive tackle. He, this team needs a D-tackle. Throw him over here in a mock draft. Yeah, and like all positions, I think the right word is it's an evolving position. And like all in, in the games, always changing. It's just a position I don't think is as much under the microscope. These guys aren't usually on your fantasy teams and on your highlights on Monday morning. You know, we're always talking about the third down back and the slot receiver and the nickels and these hybrid safeties. Well, these trench players are really interesting studies too, so I'm glad we uh, covered the one tech. No question. So, uh, Ben, as always, good stuff. We will talk to you early next week here uh, with Dane Brewer. You can always catch uh, Ben and I as well over on the Eagle Eye and the Sky podcast. We're always talking scheme, philosophy, player evaluation, all that stuff uh, every single week over on the Eagle Eye and the Sky podcast. Ben, we'll talk to you next week, man. It's time for Mr. Relevant. Well, excited to welcome back here to the Journey of the Draft podcast, driven by AAA, my friend Kyle Krabs from the Draft Network. Kyle, welcome back, man. It's good to talk with you, Fran. It's uh, starting to be that time of year, most wonderful time of the year. I'm not talking about the holidays. I'm talking about draft season. So, That's right. Here it's we always are. draft season. Some people say that. You know, so it's, it's always draft season. Um, let's, let me ask you this, man. We're, we're getting into the thick of college football. Uh, we've got a lot of big games here this weekend. Hopefully, a lot of them are still played. Um, I want to talk to you about a team that's kind of local. You're, you're in Delaware. I'm in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. uh, Penn State, over in the western part of the state. What is their issue right now in your mind? Because I know you watch a lot of Big Ten. I know you watch a lot of Penn State. What do you see as their main issue right now? And then who is a guy that's still playing for them that you're saying you, you know, you're really excited about moving forward into the next level? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because you heard the consensus from a lot of the Penn State players when the Big Ten first made their decision to not play over the course of the summer, they said, you know, this was going to be one of the best Penn State teams of all time. And they thought they had all this talent at their disposal. And then they come back and they play. And obviously they don't have Micah Parsons and Journey Brown has to medically retire. And that's super unfortunate. And uh, I just, the thing that jumps off to me watching Penn State is, you know, I thought Sean Clifford, the quarterback showed some nice things in 2019. I didn't think he was a super high level pro prospect or anything like that, but I thought he was a, a, effective college quarterback and then you watch them early this season and it just seemed like they never really got their chemistry back and you know they have the freshman there that's making some noise and Jahan Dotson is uh, a less dynamic version of the KJ Hamler type role that that Penn State is very clearly missing and I I think the the playmakers offensively has really kind of drawn out the warts in Sean Clifford. So th- that's been the biggest thing for me. They obviously miss Micah Parsons defensively and and all the things that he can do. And I think it's a great testament to, to the impact that he can bring to the table as a three-down hybrid linebacker that can do a lot of things for you. But when I look at the roster and who's still there, I, I see two names 
one that's eligible and one that's not. Joey Porter Jr., as if we didn't have enough of these guys whose dads played in the leagues that can make us feel all that much older. Joey Porter Jr. for Penn State's defense is really impressive young-looking kid and flying around, and he's making plays every single week. For draft eligibles, I really like the defensive end, Jason Owe. I I think his athletic ability and and the package that he presents – uh, we we spun that for Yeter Grossmatos last year as far as a, a really exciting player, but I think always more dynamic than he is. He's longer than he is, and he's more flexible. And I thought he took a nice step forward from what I've seen this year with what his pass rush counters are versus what it was last year when he was kind of the third guy in the mix as the rotational guy behind Shaka Tony and uh, Yeter Grossmatos. I remember talking with Detour Grossmatos at the Combine and asking him just about Owe, and his eyes just like lit up and was like, yeah. this guy is just an absolute freak. I agree. I mean, you look at the tools compared to what uh, Grossmatos had to what Owe has. And, and Grossmatos was uh, no slouch himself, ends up going right. in the second round at his size and with his tools. Uh, but Owe, I mean, he is just – there's not a lot of guys walking around um, with what the physical gifts he has. Uh, so as we wait for this Penn State program to kind of wake up, who is your favorite sleeper uh, as we sit here today? Who's the favorite, your guy that you're like, you know what, uh, this guy's just not getting enough love when I look around the country and coverage of the NFL draft at this point. Yeah, I, I had a couple names uh, that came to mind here. One of them is still in the Big Ten, Muhammad Ibrahim, the running back from Minnesota, who got off to a hot start with double-digit touchdowns rushed for, and I believe their first three games there in Minnesota. And yeah. Yeah, he, He'd been bogged down in a lot of timeshares in years past, and uh, not this year. He's, he's kind of become the go-to guy there. And I don't think he's especially special as an athlete, but his contact balance and, and his ability to press the line of scrimmage and, and create added yardage after contact, those things all jumped off at me when I watched Ibrahim. It's like, man, he's a really fun, just compact bowling ball of a running back. But uh, another name that that I did want to mention here, he doesn't get a lot of love because he plays – tight end for Ohio State, and that's automatically a kiss of death. He's never going to get the football there. But Jeremy Ruckert um, is a really impressive-looking tight end prospect as well who uh, I wish they got more passing volume to those tight ends that him and Luke Farrell appear to both be NFL-caliber players. But but Ruckert, uh, he's flashed off the tape at me going all the way back to 2019 watching his resume last year, and I think he's the better receiver of the two. And as the NFL looks to continue to find these height, weight, speed, mismatch tight end guys, I think Jeremy Ruckert is somebody who, if you get him into the, the pre-draft process and he shows what his athleticism looks like, people might say, well, wait a minute, that, that guy can be a lot more than what he was at college as far as being a receiver. So let me ask you this question because we, you know we do a, we both do a lot of work over the summer and the spring looking mm-hmm. ahead to the NFL draft and we do a lot of work off guys uh, this year from the 2019 tape and then we wait for 2020 to play out. Who is a guy that, based off the work you did in the summer, has really kind of ex- uh, exceeded those expectations? Has really kind of pr- pushed himself up your board a little bit and it really impressed you based off what you've seen so far in 2020? And I don't I don't know how original this answer is going to be because he's been on fire for the past month. But Jalen Phillips, the defensive end from University of Miami, who originally started out at UCLA as a five-star and this all-star prep prospect and was a starter as a true freshman there and had some injuries and transferred out and appeared as though he had some medical stuff that had caused him to retire. And he comes back out and transfers to Miami. And you watch him play. And he has like first round physical ability. And it's very clear why he was a five-star prospect. But 
he was physically dominating guys early in the season, but now the production has kind of fallen in place behind it. And there's some teams that have played Miami recently that I think they're, those offensive tackles might be waking up in a cold sweat in the middle of the night because he, he was relentless. And you, you see the speed to power conversion, the short air explosiveness that he has, the frame that he has, uh, some of the, the torso mobility and getting skinny and forcing missed punches. And, and he's really checked a lot of boxes. So, you know, we'll need to see what his medical and vetting looks like in the, the draft process. But he looks the part of a first-round pass rusher just based off his tape at Miami this year. I like it. So I asked you earlier about your favorite sleeper. And to me, this question is a little bit different, but I love asking people, who's a guy that you feel like you are much higher on than everybody else because you know you put your board together you look at your top 100 your top 50 and you're like man like I know I'm, the, I'm on the high end for right. this player who's a guy right. on on the offensive side of the ball that you feel that you're just higher on than everybody else in the industry in the industry uh, you could ask a lot of folks who wide receiver one's going to be this year and get a couple different answers I don't know how many of them are going to say Jalen Waddle but that's the direction that I find myself leaning in the here and now, and obviously had the ankle injury against Tennessee and he's missed the rest of the game. I heard on a broadcast, he was potentially angling for a return for the college football playoff. If that materializes for him would help him a ton, but uh, to, to show that he's healthy and can play again. But, you know, I, I, I think he really got kind of typecast as a gadget guy because he was wide receiver four amongst the 2019 Alabama crew, but he was in a much more prominent role for Alabama this year. And he absolutely made the most of the targets that he got in the games that he got before he got hurt on the opening kickoff against Tennessee. And I believe it was his fifth game of the season. So Jalen Waddle for me, when you take into account the explosiveness, uh, what he can do after the catch, I think he's a little bit more refined as a route runner than, than people want to give him credit for. And it's, it's easy to look like a bad route runner when Devonta Smith's on the other side. Right. right. So, so, I mean, Devonta cooks everybody up, but I think Waddle for me, I'm more comfortable with projecting him into a high-volume receiving role in the NFL based on his measurables versus a Devonta Smith. And I think Jamar Chase is a little bit more of a scheme-specific kind of back shoulder contest catch, more stereotypical possessiver. He won a lot of balls with Joe Burrow based off chemistry as much as anything else, not necessarily creating a ton of separation. Waddle and Smith create separation, but Waddle has the explosiveness that, that makes me want to lean into him, even though he doesn't have the production that some of the other guys have. I'm going to ask you the same question and go on the defensive side, because you know, I think you look at, at Waddle, certainly he is a guy that a lot of people uh, are very high on, but you like him at wide receiver one, uh, certainly uh, puts him above the notch. Is there another guy that you feel that way about on the defensive side? Yeah, so the linebacker group is interesting because you got Micah Parsons and then it kind of feels like a, a collection of guys in another tier, whether it's Nick Bolton or Dylan Moses, but a guy that I really like based off of his redshirt freshman tape of 2019 out of Minnesota, or Michigan is Cam McGrone. And McGrone, he kind of gives you some of that Devin Bush type vibe as far as his stature and the explosiveness that he has. And he was really impressive when I studied him over the course of the summer uh, for what he brought from a mental processing perspective. And they, they rotated him early in the season as a redshirt freshman. And then he kind of comes into the mix. And you know, once he wrestled away that more prominent role, you're, you're watching him making uh, keys in the red zone and scraping over top and, and collisioning quarterback on QB run off tackle and 
just a lot of really impressive reps on his tape. And I think he has the athletic ability to be a three down linebacker at the NFL level. So, you know, Nick Bolton, I think he's a little, I think Cameron Grohn's a little bit more agile and fluid than what Nick Bolton is. Nick Bolton is no question a downhill thud guy. He's going to be a three down linebacker, but I think McGrone has a little bit more upside because of his athleticism that as he continues to develop, he, he may have a higher ceiling. This linebacker class overall, I just feel like is, is a little bit underrated. I, I don't think that, you know, people are talking about that. There's a lot of guys I feel that have that three down potential. Uh, McGrone, I know gets a lot of buzz uh, for that moniker. Kyle, this has been great, man. Really appreciate you once again, joining us here on the journey of the draft podcast driven by AAA. Stay safe, stay healthy. We'll talk to you soon, man. Thanks Fran. Always a fun time. Now it's time for Pick 6. Well, excited to welcome back here for another segment of Pick 6, my friend Ross Tucker. And Ross, uh, it was an interesting one last week. We had, we had a tight matchup here last week in our six picks. I picked up one game on you, extended my lead back to four games. Uh, I took TCU in the upset over Oklahoma State. You had the Cowboys in that one. I took UCLA over Arizona State. Uh, you had the Sun Devils in that one. You, however, did get me back here uh, with Kadarius Tony getting 13.5 yards per catch. Uh, I took Florida, who only won by 12 points against Tennessee. Um, and then uh, I was very close to my upset special, Oregon State, over Utah. But all in all, I pick up one game on you. We'll see if uh, you can gain some more ground on me uh, here this week. And look, we've already had one big cancellation uh, with Michigan and Ohio State being postponed. Um, that's of this recording. Hopefully, uh, the rest of these games that we're going to talk about will be played, but we're going to start in the ACC. A big one here, North Carolina and Miami. Straight pick them, Ross. Who do you like here? Well, first of all, let me just say, I thought Oklahoma State had that one against TCU. <laughs> they were up like they were up by two or three scores. Yeah. I was feeling good about that one. Um, I'm going to go Miami. couple different reasons. Number one, North Carolina's defense is really bad. Surprisingly bad. For some of the guys like Chaz Surratt that they have on that side of the ball. And I think late, I'm going to go. I think it's a close game. Listen, yeah. I mean, it's going to be a great game. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I just think late, I will go with De'Eric King's legs over Sam Howe. I think he is the difference maker. And I think Miami has a better defense. Give me the Canes. So I will go with uh, the the heels here on this one. And the big thing, you mentioned De'Ara King's legs. Uh, I will go with Javante Williams and Michael Carter's legs uh, here in this one. I feel like you look at North Carolina, obviously Sam Howell, the sophomore quarterback. Look, he's come up big in some moments. Uh, North Carolina able to beat Miami last year. They kind of took them by surprise. I don't know if that will necessarily be the case here in this one. Obviously, they know North Carolina, one of the best teams in the conference. But I think ultimately, I will take the Tar Heels here. I really like that run game. I've talked about him in the past. That duo at running back, really, really impressive. So I will go uh, with the Tar Heels. So we'll go opposite ways here in the ACC matchup. Let's go Big Ten here. Wisconsin against Iowa, right up, up, up your alley here with Big Ten country, Ross. Who do you like here, the Badgers or the Hawkeyes? I got the Hawkeyes, man. I'm up front, both sides of the ball, and I don't know what's happened to Wisconsin. I, I, I was shocked that Wisconsin lost to Indiana and their backup quarterback – I got to go Iowa just because I'm not sure. It's almost like after Wisconsin lost Northwestern, I just wonder what the motivation is at this point. 
Yeah, obviously, you know, you look at the at Iowa, they're five and two at this point, uh, you know, with what they've been able to do with that roster. Um, you know, they, they've got some players. That I don't feel like a lot of people are necessarily talking about right now, but, you know, you look at, uh, you know, Sam Laporta, uh, he's got 26 catches on the year. Amir Smith-Marset, I've talked about, he's got the ability to be a real game breaker, still only 11.4 yards per catch, but one of the leaders on that team in touchdowns. I'm going to overall, I'm going to agree with you, though. I, I like uh, what Iowa has put together over the last few weeks. I'm going to go Hawkeyes here. Stay on the same side uh, of you on this one. Let's get to our next one. Initially, we were going to pick this uh, or talk about necessarily this Michigan and Ohio State game. As I mentioned, that one has been postponed. So we're going to substitute that here. A little Big 12. This is a big one here. Oklahoma and West Virginia. Now, coming into this matchup, Oklahoma quarterback Spencer Rattler, the freshman, he has got nine, he was averaging 9.7 yards per attempt. So that's the number we're going to work off here, Ross. Who do you like? You like Oklahoma by over Spencer Rattler's 9.7 points per game? Or do you like uh, the West Virginia here to win or to make that a closer matchup or get the outright upset? Um, I'm going to go the over. I, I think I think Oklahoma wins by double digits. Oklahoma looks like they're on fire right now. I don't think West Virginia can keep pace with them. So I'm going to go the over on the margin of victory. I'm going to go with the under. I think you look at West Virginia's defense. Um, you know, they've got guys at all three levels that are playing well. Tony Fields is running around. Uh, I'd like to see the, you know that matchup with those two guys. With you, know, you look at Fields coming downhill against Lamondre Stevenson, that that thunderous running back there for the Sooners. Uh, Oklahoma's just kind of been uh, really up and down. Really a mercurial team in terms of the way that they've played. I know they've turned things around over the last month and change, but uh, overall, I'm going to take West Virginia. See what the Mountaineers can do uh, in this one. I like that defense. We'll see. Uh, if they can get things going here against the Sooners. So I will take West Virginia. You will take Oklahoma. Let's get to our fourth matchup here. Virginia and Virginia Tech. We're going to go back to the, the running back here, Khalil Herbert, who has cooled off a little bit after a really fast start over the last few games. Uh, hasn't put up quite the numbers that we've seen, but I'm going to set the over-under 89.5 rushing yards for Khalil Herbert in the rivalry game, Virginia Tech against UVA. Yeah, I think he goes over. I, you know, I've been impressed with Herbert and not overly impressed with UVA's run defense at times. They're going to need Herbert to have a big day to win this game. It's funny. I saw some tweets today from our buddies, Ben Fennel and Matt Waldman, because I forgot this, but Matt Waldman had referenced Khalil Herbert on the College Draft podcast in the offseason yep. when Herbert transferred from Kansas. He had seen him play at Kansas a couple times, thought he was good, and Man, he was like, Kansas had Khalil Herbert and Puka Williams at the same yeah. time. Yeah, and Herbert was that was barely really utilized uh, in that offense and now obviously ended up Virginia Tech and uh, you know has been one of the most productive running backs in college football. Obviously, that offensive line having a lot to do with it. I'm going to agree with you here. I'm going to take the over here. I, I like Herbert uh, getting a, a lot of big chunks of yardage here against that Virginia defense. All right, let's go. Uh, another run game one here. Over under nine and a half tackles for Missouri linebacker Nick Bolton versus Georgia. I think Bolton is a stud. Uh, interested to kind of get your thoughts. You like Nick Bolton here over under against this Georgia offense. Nine and a half tackles for Nick Bolton. Yeah, I'm going to go over. And I'm going to go over because I picture Georgia having the lead. I picture Georgia running the ball a bunch in the second half to put the game away. And I picture Nick Bolton just racking up the tackle. So I'll go over. I was right in lockstep with me. I felt like that was an over as well uh, for the exact reason that you just said. So 
on separate sides here for two matchups. We'll see if this one can be a little bit of a swing here. Our sixth one, our upset special. Pick one big upset, Gross, that you like this week in college football. Okay, this is a dicey one, okay. but I'm going for it. San Diego State <laughs> over BYU. This is a major upset, but San Diego State's not bad. Yep. And I think BYU mentally is going to be crushed. That Coastal Carolina loss, they, they, they just lost not only a chance at the college football playoff, they just lost a New Year's Six Bowl. I think BYU is going to be devastated. I think San Diego State has a chance to knock them off. Interesting. I like it. So you're playing the sports psychology angle, see if they can, uh, you know, they let uh, Coastal Carolina beat them twice. I think that's an interesting one. I'm going to go Michigan State over Penn State, Ross. I think you look at Michigan State, you look at Mel Tucker, they've been a, a, a really feisty team this year. They've played everybody pretty hard. I look at Penn State, obviously they've got a little bit of more confidence here. I picked them to beat Michigan a couple weeks ago. I just think Michigan State comes out with a win. I'm surprised that people feel uh, that Penn State is an easy victor here in this one. Interesting to kind of get your thoughts on it, but I, I like Michigan State here in this game. I, I am too surprised that uh, you know, the Nittany Lions are considered as heavy a favorites as they are. Um, I think it's a close game. Now, the Penn State has played much better the last couple of weeks, Fran. Yep. They dominated Rutgers up front, both sides of the ball. I mean, they really did. They had their way with them. Penn State looked the last two weeks a little bit more like I thought they would look this year. But Michigan State's got some big wins this year. I'm, I'm not ready. I, I think that's a good call. I think Penn State probably wins the game. But it wouldn't shock me at all. I, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't consider it a huge upset if Michigan State won. No, I, I think it's uh, certainly a game that I'll be keeping my eye on here this week. Well, Ross, fun as always. We'll see if uh, you're able to gain some more ground on me here this week, man. Man, I hope so. It's just fun watching the scores each week and knowing I'm coming for you. <laughs> all right, Ross. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode of the Journey to the Draft podcast driven by AAA. A lot of fun catching up once again with Ross Tucker, Kyle Krabs, and as always, Ben Fennell. Hopefully you guys will be joining us early next week. We're getting closer and closer to the end of the college football season. Getting Kind of getting that vibe for the Senior Bowl and all that stuff going on in the pre-draft process. It's just around the corner once we get through this holiday season. So make sure you stay tuned right here to the Journey to the Draft podcast driven by AAA.